came together today and celebrated the resurrection, celebrated your victory over sin and over death that we get to take part in. So God, we thank you for that amazing truth. We thank you for the amazing power that you displayed. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Amen. Well, that was some great singing here this morning. I didn't want it to end. I appreciate so much our choir being with us. Thank you all so much for being with us for all the services today and for everyone else who's up here, our players. We just appreciate so much the music. Um, I want to welcome everyone here for Resurrection Day. Um, if you're a visitor, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. We want to thank you for uh, coming and visiting Faith Bible Church on this uh, special Lord's Day. Um, it's been well said about Easter that this is the day that defines every other day for us as Christians. And that's really true. This is the defining day uh, for us as believers in Jesus Christ. And our text this morning on this defining day for us is in Matthew 28. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 28, I want to look at verses 11 through 15, and I want to bring a message this morning I've entitled, uh, Don't Be Fooled. Uh, let me read these verses for us, Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you were to say his disciples came by night and stole his body away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is uh, to this day. Well, so reads God's inspired and errant word. Today is a Resurrection Day, it's Easter, but it's also April Fool's Day. And uh, due to the, the kind of the twists and turns in, in dating Easter, these two uh, dates coincide periodically. Um, it happened last back in 1956. Uh, the next time it will happen is in 2029, and after that it's 2040, and then it won't happen again for this entire century. Now, April Fool's Day can be a, a fun tradition when we play uh, pranks on each other, and sometimes people pull individual pranks on each other. Sometimes institutions uh, like to pull pranks on a lot of people at once. Uh, here are some of the better ones I've run across. Uh, back on April the 1st of 1957, uh, the BBC in England ran a three-minute report purportedly showing a family in southern Switzerland harvesting spaghetti from the family spaghetti tree. Uh, they had uh, hung cooked pasta on trees and showed women pulling it off the trees and putting it into baskets. Now, evidently, that was a time when spaghetti wasn't as well known in Britain, and uh, many Britons were unaware that it's made with wheat and flour and water. Uh, a number of viewers afterwards contacted uh, the BBC for advice on growing their own spaghetti trees. Uh, back in 2015, on, on April Fool's Day, Cottonelle tweeted that it was introducing left-handed toilet paper for all the Southpaws out there. On April 1st, 1996, there was a full-page ad in six major American newspapers announcing that Taco Bell had purchased the Liberty Bell to help uh, alleviate uh, the national debt, and it would now be called the Taco Liberty Bell is what it would be called. My favorite one, though, is April 1st, 1988, a full-page ad in USA Today, Burger King announced a solution for the 1.4 million left-handed customers that visit their restaurants. It was the left-handed Whopper. 
Uh, Burger King said all the condiments were rotated 180 degrees to suit the uh, uh, left-handed burger eaters, uh, the the connoisseurs who are left-handed burger eaters, if you will. Now, Southpaws eagerly lined up the next day to buy these, but also there were a lot of right-handed people in line ahead of them. They were caught up in all this, making sure they got the right Whopper. They didn't want to get the left-handed one by accident. Now, I guess you could call that April Fool's prank a real whopper, right? I'm sorry, I couldn't resist the temptation. It's bad. I know it's bad. Now, all that's funny. These stories about April Fool's Day are funny, but it's not, what's not so funny is when we turn to the Easter story. All these attempts that we see of detractors, uh, early detractors of Christianity, to deny the earth-shaking reality of the resurrection and to fool people into thinking that it never really took place. Uh, That's the gist of our passage this morning that I just read a few moments ago here at the end of Matthew 28. Here we see the religious leaders, um, we see the uh, Roman guards conspiring together to deny the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and to peddle a narrative that the disciples of Jesus had come and they'd stolen the body. Uh, This is the narrative that according to Matthew was still circulating 30 years later when he writes this gospel, probably in the early 60s A.D., Now, fake news about Jesus' resurrection has been around a long time, and it continues to this day. We see these uh, denials commercialized in books and movies like uh, the Da Vinci Code. Uh, We see it institutionalized in religions like Islam, and we see it popularized today uh, by liberals and atheists, and we see it all over out there on the Internet. Now, as believers, we have to take these denials seriously because our faith is based on historical public events that can be weighed and tested. We can't just ignore these denials that are out there because everything for us as believers rises and falls on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection, simply there is no Christianity. I like what Mark Strauss said. This is a great quote. He said, Christianity has put all of its eggs in the Easter basket. That's a good statement, isn't it? Christianity has put all of its eggs in the Easter basket. That is the hinge of Christianity. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection. Now, since that's true, what I want to do this morning is look at the original lie, the original denial of the resurrection. We could call this uh, the mother of all resurrection denial theories. I want to look at this this morning under two simple headings. I want to look at the deception that took place and then the dissemination. Now, I'm going to spend almost all the time on point number one, so don't look at your watch later and say, man, he's not even to point number two. He's never going to finish. So I want you to to not lose heart here this morning. We're, We're going to spend most of the time on this first point. But let's look at the deception here in verses 11 through 14. Now, this incident here I've read this morning is only in Matthew's gospel. And it seems here that the chief priests are hearing about the resurrection of Jesus before the disciples even hear about it. Because you'll notice in verse 11, it says, Now while they were on their way, that is, the women who'd been to the tomb and seen the empty tomb, while they're on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. So these chief priests may have heard about the resurrection before the disciples even did. So they're the first to hear about it, and then they're the first to reject it. Now, one question that always comes up here is, why are these Roman soldiers going to the chief priests instead of the Roman authorities? Why are they going to these chief priests rather than to Pontius Pilate? Well, you notice back up in chapter 27 and verse 65, 
uh, these religious leaders come to Pilate and ask him to, for a guard to place at the tomb, lest the disciples of Jesus come and steal the body and kind of try to stage a mock resurrection. And it says in verse 65 of chapter 27, Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. So Pontius Pilate had put uh, some Roman guards at the disposal of these religious leaders. And so when this resurrection takes place, that's who these guards are going to go back to now and report back to about what's happened. Now, I love verse 11. It says, they came back and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now, I would like to have heard that report. These guards come in that morning out of breath. These religious leaders are gathered there, and they tell them everything they'd happened. I'd love to have heard that report, and I'd love to have seen the expression on the religious leaders' faces as these soldiers are describing this to them, because they had quite a story to tell. We look back up in verse 2. The oldest severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So these men go and they, they, they go to these religious leaders and they start telling them about this earthquake that took place. The ground was shaking. And of course, there was an earthquake at the death of Jesus. There's an earthquake now at his resurrection. The Bible tells us in the end times with his second coming, there's going to be the mother of all earthquakes at that time. Creation is responding to its creator. The stone is rolled away. There's an arrival of a, of a blazing angel. And then these soldiers fall to the ground in trauma and fear. Notice it says the guards shook for fear uh, of him and became like dead men. The word shook there is the same word in verse 2 for the earthquake. So these soldiers, each one have their own individual earthquake. As they're shaking in fear and they fall to the ground, literally paralyzed in fear. And then they must have reported that at some point, I'm sure they went and stuck their heads inside the tomb and looked in there, and they'd have reported the body's not there. And they would also reported that not only was the body gone, but the grave clothes were still there like in a hardened cocoon. Remember the 75 pounds of spices, they would have hardened. The, the grave clothes are still there like a hardened cocoon, and the body has just simply evaporated or disintegrated right out of them. The soldiers told these religious leaders all of this. Now, after hearing this, we might expect these religious leaders to say, that's incredible. Jesus was right. I mean, he preached over and over again that he would rise again on the third day. And sure enough, it's a resurrection. Jesus is alive. He's come back to life, just as he said. We'd expect them to fall on their faces weeping and crying and calling out to Jesus to forgive them for their unbelief. After all, Jesus had repeated this, had, uh, re had said this repeatedly, but they refused to believe in him. In fact, you remember even back in Matthew chapter 12, these same religious leaders demanded a sign from Jesus that would let them believe in him. And Jesus said to them, no other sign will be given unto you but the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and he will rise again. So these men have sought a sign, and now the sign that they sought has been given, and yet they still refuse to believe. And even worse, they refuse to even investigate this. 
mean, you think at least they would say, well, let's go down there and check this out, right? Maybe it's true. Maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe uh, he has come back to life. We ought to at least check it out. But there's nothing at all from these religious leaders. They were so stubborn and blind and self-willed that they wouldn't believe and they wouldn't even investigate the report that was given to them by these soldiers. They wouldn't even consider the evidence. And that reminds me of the story about Bertrand Russell. Some of you may know of him, probably the most famous atheist of the last century. When he was 90 years old, he had a famous encounter with a woman at a party. The woman said to him, she said, Mr. Russell, you're not only the world's most famous atheist, you're maybe the world's oldest atheist. You will die soon. You will, and and, what, and uh, what will you do if after you die, it turns out that God exists? What will you do if you come face to face with the God you've defied your whole life long? And Bertrand Russell responded that he would point his finger at God and say, you, sir, gave us insufficient evidence. Now, by the way, he's not going to say that because the Bible tells us when the Lord, we appear before him, when the people appear at the great white throne, their mouths are going to be stopped. They're not going to say anything. But that's what he thinks he's going to say. The problem is insufficient evidence. Well, that's not the problem. It wasn't the problem for these religious leaders. It wasn't Bertrand Russell's problem either. There's a mountain of evidence. I like what Woody Allen, he's another well-known atheist, Someone asked him what it would take for him to believe in God. And he said, well, it would take some unmistakable sign, like making a large deposit in a Swiss a bank account in my name. So he's a little more practical in his demand, right? But, but the response here of these leaders shows the depravity of their hearts. It's not the evidence that's lacking. It's stubborn, willful unbelief. It's like uh, the story of Richard Halverson. He was the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., he was leading an evangelistic discussion with a, a group of young men in a college fraternity. And one of them asked him, can you prove that Jesus ever lived? And he answered the question with a question of his own. He says, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Now, this young man was clever enough to realize he'd been caught in a trap of his own making. Because if he said yes, then he'd have to admit that he believed in George Washington on the basis of historical evidence. And then he would have to face the evidence, the historical evidence of Jesus' reality. So he grinned and said, no, I don't believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. And he disappeared into the doorway. You see, the problem is he wasn't looking for answers, but just a reason to bolster his unbelief. And these religious leaders of Jesus' day are the same way. They're not really looking for answers. They're just looking for things to bolster their unbelief. Now, since the body, though, is clearly missing, they have to come up with some story, right? You have to have some explanation for this missing body. So what they do is they come up with a cover-up plan, and they bribe the guards to go along with it. Notice verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you were to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So it probably took a lot of money to get these soldiers to go along with this plan because uh, they could be killed for falling asleep on duty. It's not something they would have wanted to admit. So the first part of this whole plot here, a conspiracy, was bribing these soldiers to tell the lie. The grave was clearly empty. No one could deny that. And so the only really other alternative explanation other than the resurrection was that the disciples came and stole the body. 
Now, since back at that time when this theory was uh, concocted, there's been a lot of other theories that have been advanced to explain away the resurrection of Jesus. Let me just mention three of the more popular ones. There's a lot of them out there, but one of them is called the swoon or the resuscitation theory. A lot of you probably heard of that. This is the only one of these false theories that claims that Jesus didn't really die. All the other ones all agree that he died. It's just uh, they believe that something else happened. But this contends that Jesus didn't really die. He just lapsed into a coma and then was revived at some point in time. Now, if this theory is true, it means that Jesus successfully survived the severe beating, uh, the loss of blood, the crucifixion, uh, the further loss of blood when the spear was plunged into his side and left a gaping wound, uh, that he survived entombment uh, with 75 uh, pounds of spices on his weakened body. He survived three days with no food or water. Um, He woke up in the tomb uh, without any medical assistance. After having lost most of his blood, he moved the stone away. He walked out, overpowered the Roman guard, and walked seven miles to Emmaus on feet that had been pierced with nails. Now, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, that's more implausible than the resurrection itself. Yet these are the kinds of theories that are advanced by intellectual people. Another theory is the no burial theory. That's very common today. People will say, look... Jesus' body wasn't buried. It was thrown into a shallow grave, and his body was eaten by scavenging dogs. That's why the body's missing. Well, the answer to that is the Bible tells us, and the Bible is a historical account, that people back in Matthew's day could go check out because a lot of these people were still alive. And a wealthy supporter of Jesus named Joseph of Arimathea risked his position as a national leader, and he put Jesus' body in his own tomb. And a group of women saw where Jesus was buried, and they could have given evidence of that. Or other people will say, well, Jesus wasn't buried. His body was just left on the cross to rot, because that's often what the Romans did. It's a great deterrent to people who wanted to uh, defy Rome in the future. Just leave a body hanging there, rotting on a cross. But we know that it's Passover, and the Jews wouldn't leave a body hanging on the cross at Passover. Also, here's another point. If Jesus' body was left on the cross to rot, it would have been easy to produce it, right? Say, well, go get his body off the cross. We we know exactly where it is. Well, that one won't hold water either. The other one that's that's really popular nowadays, again, among uh, unbelieving intellectuals, is the wrong tomb theory, that everybody just went to the wrong tomb. Jesus was buried somewhere else. They thought it was empty, but they simply went to the wrong tomb. Well, again, Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in his own tomb. The women saw the burial of Jesus. And think about this. Is it really plausible to believe that these Roman soldiers guarded the wrong tomb? Look, these theories uh, don't stand up under scrutiny. And neither do any of the other theories. There's about, you know, seven, eight, ten of these theories. I don't want to go through them all this morning, but the other ones are just as easily refuted as these. Let me just say this this morning to young people who are here. Don't let college professors or other people who are intellectuals today who are unbelievers confuse you and intimidate you by throwing up a lot of speculation and doubt about Jesus. Look, they may appeal to their intellect. They may claim that they're appealing to history. They may claim they're appealing to facts. But you have stronger evidence for the existence of Jesus, for his death and for his resurrection than they have. Here's the bottom line. They don't have an explanation. The only thing they're sure of is he didn't rise from the dead. Now, they're sure about that. 
but they don't know anything else. They have no explanation. All they know is he didn't rise, but they have no explanation for the missing body. Now, let's go back now to to this mother of all theories, this stolen body theory. And let me give you seven reasons why it's impossible that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, since this is the uh, original false theory that was out there. First of all, the disciples were a bunch of cowards. I mean, Peter wouldn't even admit to a slave girl that he was a follower of Jesus. And he ended up denying Jesus three times, and all the disciples were scattered. One writer says it like this, if the disciples did not protect Jesus while he was alive, surely they would not have risked their lives to rob his tomb after his death. I mean, they weren't interested in that. Secondly, the disciples didn't believe in the resurrection. Why in the world would they fake it? I mean, when you read the gospel accounts, the disciples of Jesus are just as surprised by the resurrection as anybody else. They didn't believe in it. They had to go and see it. In fact, you remember Thomas even has to put his hands in the, 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 the mark in Jesus' side and see the prince in his, his hands and his feet before he will believe. So they were surprised by the resurrection as anybody else, so they had no reason to go uh, stage some mock resurrection. The third point I would give is just the grave clothes were in the tomb still in the shape of a body. Again, this hardened cocoon of these grave clothes was still there with the body of Jesus simply dematerialized or evaporated right out of it. Uh, the, the, the tomb of Jesus was hardly the scene of a grave robbery. Either there would have been nothing there, they took it all with them, or it would have been in disarray in some fashion. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, The fourth reason is if the disciples did steal the body, they would never have been able to keep it a secret that long. So, well, how do you know that? Well, uh, Chuck Colson, many of you are familiar with him. He was one of the conspirators in the Watergate, the whole Watergate uh, scandal back during the Nixon administration, later became a, a tremendous, powerful witness for Jesus Christ. Here's what Chuck Colson said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. He says, you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I mean, you go back to Watergate, if you're alive, those guys started turning on each other and going state's witness to try to save their own skin uh, like crazy. He's saying, look, you're not going to keep a lie like that for 12 people uh, for over 40 years' time. Number five, the disciples would never have preached the lie about the resurrection when it began to cost them persecution and eventually their lives. Now, a lot of people will say, well, look, a lot of people have died for a lie in church history or in in history. And certainly that's true, but most people don't die for a lie if they know it's a lie. And see, they would have known it was a lie if they stole the body. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician, physicist, he said this, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. That's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, if I'm going to believe somebody, I'm going to believe the people getting their throat cut because they're likely the people that are telling the truth. And all the disciples died for their faith. Here's how Haddon Robinson says it. He says, men have preached a lie knowing it's a lie if in preaching it they put gold in their pockets. Men have preached a lie knowing it's a lie if when preaching it they've achieved power and authority. 
Men do not preach a lie knowing it's a lie if every time they preach it, they're courting imprisonment, persecution, poverty, and death. Men do not preach a lie knowing it's a lie if every time they preach it, they're pounding nails in their caskets. Men do not preach a lie knowing it's a lie if it means they will be crucified upside down as was Peter, or they'll be beheaded as was Paul, or they'll be stoned to death as was Stephen. And that's true, isn't it? There's no way the disciples stole the body that all of them suffered and died over a long period of time for a lie. It could never happen. The sixth reason we know the disciples didn't steal the body is the absurdity of this story. All of the soldiers would never, ever have fallen asleep. They were only on watch for four hours. They rotated watches. I think I said this earlier, but soldiers in that day, if they fell asleep like this, a lot of times they were stripped naked. Their clothes were there with them. They were burned to death. So it was a major dereliction of duty, and there's no way that all of them would have fallen asleep at the same time. Also, if, the disciple, if, if somehow they did all fall asleep, the disciples come and rolling the stone away would certainly have at least wakened, awakened one of them. And the other thing is the great folly of this story is if the disciples were asleep, how, if the soldiers were asleep, how did they know the disciples stole the body? I mean, look at verse 13, the end of it. Come and say you stole him, they stole him away while we were asleep. Now think about this. While you were asleep, you saw the disciples come and steal the body. Now, how would you like to have that testimony holding up in court, right? God says, well, I saw the guy steal my television out of my living room. Well, how do you know that? Well, I was laying over there on the couch, you know, sound asleep. I mean, this kind of thing offends, offends reason, doesn't it? It insults the facts, really, of what we see here. It's actually a comical story that's devised by people who simply want to reject the resurrection. And the, the final point here, I would say this, we know that this theft theory is not true because if the disciples stole the body, all the chief priests and the Roman authorities had to do to get rid of this whole idea of Christianity was just produce the body. That's all they had to do. They could have exploded Christianity before it ever even got out of the blocks. They could arrest the disciples, interrogate them, torture them, whatever they got to do. And they could find out where, where they'd hid the body. But notice no one even tries to produce the body. They didn't even try to find it. Why is that? Because they knew that there was no body to produce. And that's still the big issue for all of these theories that deny the resurrection. It's the missing body. That's the key issue. Now back to our text here in verse 14. Notice it says, And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. So the guards here are in a bad spot. They're in a bad spot either way. Look, if they admit falling asleep, they're in a bad spot. But they're in an equally bad spot if they don't agree to this deal offered by these religious leaders. Uh, There's no denying that the body's gone. So on any showing, these men have failed as guards. So it's risky for them either way. But if they refuse the offer of these religious leaders, then they know they're on their own. And so weighing all of this out, they decide the best option is to take this big chunk of money. And again, the Bible says it's a substantial sum of money to go along with this deception and hope that these religious leaders can keep them out of trouble. Now that brings us to verse 15, to the dissemination. They took the money. They did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. 
So a propaganda offensive of fake news is launched. These leaders wanted to, uh, to do all they could to get their fake news out there ahead of the truth, to kind of preempt the truth. So they get these soldiers going out there and spreading this. And their deception evidently was successful because it says at the end of verse 15, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Again, 30 years later, when Matthew's writing this gospel, this was still the dominant theory circulating among the Jews, that the disciples stole the body. Now, there's a deep irony in all of this. In fact, there are a lot of ironies in this whole story. But one of the great ironies to me is this. The Jewish leaders wanted the guard put there because they were afraid the disciples would come and steal the body. And then they would say, look, Jesus rose from the dead, you know, staged this mock resurrection. So it's at the bidding of these religious leaders that the soldiers are put there to start with. So it was their doing that they're there. And then these men turn around and become the first witnesses of the resurrection. But there's even a greater irony. Uh, Someone says it like this. The authorities try to cover up the resurrection by advancing the very story they had wanted to prevent. They posted a guard so no one would steal the body and say he had risen. Now they tell the guards to say they fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. In this way, they actually spread the story of the empty tomb. I mean, think about that. Here these religious leaders are actually spreading the story. The body of Jesus is gone. It's missing. And of course, they come up with this flimsy uh, theory to somehow explain it. Look, the, the truth of the resurrection is so absolute that even a lie helps prove it. So the deception of these religious leaders backfires on them. It backfires terribly. This reminds me of the story of a man who was tried for murder in Los Angeles many years ago. It was a very difficult case, had a lot of circumstantial evidence, and the man's lawyer, though, thought that, he'd come up with, he, that he had come up with an ingenious ploy in his closing argument. This is what he said. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must find my client not guilty of murder if there's the slightest reasonable doubt in your minds that he's not a murderer. And now he says, I have one final witness. The true murderer is about to walk through the door, and he points to the back door. And everybody in the place looks to that back door to see if anyone comes through. Of course, nobody does. And then he continued and he says, You see, ladies and gentlemen, there is doubt in your minds. Otherwise, you would have not have looked towards the door. So he thinks he's won the day and the jury retires and deliberates and comes back five hours later with a verdict of guilty. The lawyer's beside himself, so before the judge can pass sentence, he springs up and says, But I proved you had doubt about my client's guilt. You all looked at the door. How could you possibly find him guilty? An old man in the jury stood up and said, As everyone looked towards the door, I watched your client. His eyes did not turn toward the door. He did not even look towards the door because he knew that no one was coming through. The lawyer's lie backfired, right? It actually ended up proving the truth. We have the same thing really here in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew's testimony concerning the empty tomb lobs the ball back into the court of the unbeliever. The alternative theories that explain away the resurrection require more faith, really, than the resurrection itself. The lie actually proves uh, the truth. The Bible's explanation, and get this, the Bible's explanation is not only true, but it is necessary, given the weakness of these other views. 
I mean, as weak as these other views are, the, the story of the resurrection is not only true, but it's actually unnecessary. It's not enough for people out there today to deny the resurrection, but they must reasonably, credibly explain the empty tomb. But they can't do it. And we've seen that here this morning, and many others have shown that. Look, the truth is Jesus Christ is alive, and through His resurrection, He has ripped a hole in history. And His, re- his resurrection is evidence this morning that demands a verdict from every person. And so the question for all of us is, what will we say to this evidence? I love the words of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You come and confess that Jesus is Lord, that He's God, that He's who He says He is, and that He died for you and He rose again, then you'll be saved. Why not do that this morning if you've never done it? Why not confess Him and believe in the resurrection? One final story here. There was a a man and a woman that were repeating their vows during their wedding ceremony. The minister asked the, the young man, he asked the groom, he says, will you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? He said, well, I've, I've been thinking, actually. And the minister said, well, it's good you've been thinking, but actually I've asked you a question. Will you? And the groom said, well, I, I do get very excited when I think about her. And the minister said, well, I'm glad you get excited when you think about her, but the question I'm asking you is, will you? And finally, the man said, I will. Then the minister turned to the bride and said, well, you have this idiot to be your lawful wedded husband. <laughs> I like that story because like that young groom, there may be some of you here this morning and you're sitting there and you're thinking, you're mulling this over. And maybe you're even excited when you think about this. And maybe you've even been stirred by what you've heard here this morning. But the question that we're asking here is a question of the will. And it's a question, will you? Will you believe the gospel? Will you believe the truth about Jesus Christ? The Bible says that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose the third day according to the Scriptures. The evidence of the resurrection, the evidence we've seen this morning, demands a verdict. And I think it's tragic. I do think there are a lot of people that come to this idea somehow that if they've just thought about these things, maybe been excited by them at times or stirred by them, that that's enough. No, it's a question of the will. Will you? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust in Him alone as your Savior to take away your sins? Well, let's pray together. As we have our heads bowed here before the Lord this morning, I want to raise this question again because the evidence we've looked at this morning demands a verdict. And I want to ask you this question this morning, will you? Will you exercise your will and believe in Jesus if you've never done so? The Bible tells us He died in your place, that He's alive forevermore. And all He calls upon you to do is simply receive the pardon that He offers to you. And the question simply is, will you? Again, you may be thinking about things this morning. You may be excited about this. Your emotions may have been stirred. But it comes down to a question of the will. Will you trust in Jesus and take Him to be your Savior? I pray if you've never done so, that you'll do that this morning. You'll be born again. You'll be saved. Your sins will be washed away. Look, you don't have to work for forgiveness. All you have to do is ask for it. 
And come and take that pardon that Jesus purchased for you. Well, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never made that decision, that they'll be willing this morning and they'll take Jesus to be their Savior. And Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that through the Word of God this morning that our hearts will be encouraged, that we will be filled with hope. She'll send us out into this community, Father, and out into the world with this testimony upon our lips to share with others the good news of the gospel. Jesus is alive. We ask these things in his dear name. Amen. If you'll stand with me for the benediction as we are dismissed this morning. Again, if you're a visitor, we really appreciate you coming and being with us this morning. Uh, taking time out on this uh, wonderful resurrection day to be with us. This is uh, the defining day of the year for us as believers. Um, again, if you are a visitor, if you got these doors around the corner, there's a welcome center. I know some of you may be with family today, but if you want to take just a few minutes to stop by there, there's some folks there that would love to, to give you some information about our church. Uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, we're going to begin a study on the book of Nehemiah, an Old Testament book. It'll uh, take us through this spring and into uh, the early part and about the middle part of the summer. So uh, come back and join us for that as we start a, a wonderful study of, of the book of Nehemiah for next, next week. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we come now to lay our lives before you, to surrender all to you. We pray that you'll unleash us from this place in the power and in the hope of the one who is dead and is alive forevermore, our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.